Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Hanmin Liu and Jennifer May of the Wildflowers Institute in San Francisco, hosted by Michael Lerner. Hanmin Liu and Jennifer May, welcome to the new school at Commonweal. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Um, you are the co-founders of the Wildflowers Institute uh, in San Francisco, which sits on uh, Pacific Avenue. Is it Pacific Avenue? Yeah. Right on the border of Chinatown. Um, and um, I've had a front seat to your work for some period of time, serving on your board and uh, now for two terms as board chair. And I'm passionate about your work, and so I welcome the opportunity to um, share that passion with others who may be interested. Thank you. So uh, let me just start with a simple question. Um, what is the Wildflowers Institute? The Wildflowers Institute is a, an endeavor to uncover the the underlying energy of a community and to harness that energy. Um, we think that the, the, there's so many gaps in the world and they just, you know, the economic and social disparities that our approach to helping communities and helping funders and local government is to think through how best to draw upon the existing resources, the existing assets, the existing will of the community. And so our work is to find that will, and our, and our work is to harness that will. Hmm. Jennifer, what would you add to that as a co-founder of the Wild Violence Institute and a full partner in it? I think that for us, it's always a journey of discovery. And we seek out, um, actually we're all, almost always invited in the communities that we work in. And so that has been a great gift and privilege for us to do that. And we've met people who are passionate about helping others in their communities. Mm -hmm. And in any way we can insist in learning together with them to help them. That's what we will want to continue mm -hmm. to do and have been doing. Mm -hmm. How many communities have you worked in over the mm -hmm. last, how many years has it been? Just about 40 years. 40 years. Okay. Yeah, we've been involved in 19 communities in different parts of the United States, Mexico and China. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a list of, just run through some of the ones that come quickly to mind? Well, most recently, we've had the privilege of working in San Francisco Tenderloin District, yeah. and we love all of them. The Ethiopian community in the mm -hmm. Bay Area, the Laoyuman community uh, in East Oakland, and um, the Red Wolf Band, Albuquerque, New Mexico, uh, various locations in China, um, most recently in Ningbo, where we met, uh, where we worked with the steel workers there. That was phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Boston, Chinatown. We've worked in San Francisco, Chinatown. Mm -hmm. We've been involved in um, 
for you know probably even more than 40 years. Um, we've been in Los Angeles. We work with the Blackstone Rangers uh, in the jungle. They call it the jungle. It's um, the lower Baldwin uh, village. It's the Baldwin Hills is where they. Uh, Artists who have succeeded live in the hillside, and then it's the flatlands. They call it the village, Baldwin Village. But, you know, the, the homeboys call it uh, mm-hmm. the, the jungle. Mm-hmm. And so we've learned a lot from, from them uh, and really admire uh, their, uh, their commitment and their integrity. I've heard you speak of wildflowers... And you've already said it, but I, you've, you've, I've heard you speak of how wildflowers uh, seeks to identify and support the informal capital mm-hmm. of these communities. Many, not all of which, are low-income diaspora communities of color. Correct. And um, so the question that you posed for 40 years is: there's the there's the for-profit sector. And, does what the for-profit sector does. There's the governmental sector, does what the governmental sector does. There's the nonprofit foundation sector, decides what they think the community needs and tries to provide for those needs. But sometimes those three sectors really don't spend any time identifying what the informal capital possessed by these low-income diaspora communities of color may be, and that you have a model for identifying that informal capital. So how would you describe the model that you use to identify the informal capital of these communities? Sure. The, the model is to, is to map the what currently exists in a community, which is the formal side is all you know, the government, the nonprofits, and the private sector. Mm-hmm. It's harder, but really important uh, to map the informal side of the community. And what we're seeing in the informal side is that they're almost organized really differently than the formal side. The formal side, you have accountability, transparency, mm-hmm. and you have a set of rules and regulations that you abide by. But the informal side of the community, it's about relationships. It's not about the the law of the land, Mm -hmm. but it's about relationships. And we call it informal capital because where where Putnam did some amazing work on talking about the social capital. That's Robert Putnam. Robert Putnam, right. He wrote Bowling Alone. Exactly. Um, That what what we're seeing is it goes beyond. I mean, his focus was in many ways around the uh, at the time that he he introduced the notion, uh, the concept is to focus on the relationships among organizations. Mm -hmm. What we're seeing is the relationship among people Mm -hmm. and groups of self-organized groups, and the informal capital is is currency almost is the wealth in the community that comes about through being reliable, being there, supporting, helping, giving a helping hand um, to solve problems, to share stories, to undertake a variety of different efforts uh, from the heart and from a a relationship rather than from a a transactional, what do I get out of it if I give you something? You know, Mm -hmm. it isn't so much that kind of 
mindset, but it's really a mindset of, hey, we're, we're here, we're all challenged. This is a really tough you know, world that we're living in, a tough community, a tough nation, and we're all having real challenges. So how do we help each other? Uh, and so the first thing we do is to map the community on both formal and informal. Who are these groups? Who are these self-organized groups? And we'll just sit in parks and go to cafes and walk the streets. And particularly, we'll, we'll look for where the eyes go in a, in a conversation that people have because the, where the eyes go actually tells us a lot about where, where people are looking to for other for support. And we follow up with that to then identify the, we would call them informal leaders of the community. And we say that not to, I mean, formal and informal are both equally important. You know, it isn't like informal is not as important as an executive director or president of an entity. We actually see informal is, is, is as important. But we just, we use the term informal simply because it's a, it's on the informal side of the community. But these are the go-to people. These are the ones who quietly make change. So we identify them. And the third thing we do is we do model building or sand trays. Sand trays are, are, is a, a really powerful tool because what it does is uncovers the, makes conscious the unconscious. It, it provides a visual landscape and we invite people to build models or sand trays of their community. So we can see, are there men, women, are there children, are there you know, of different races and ethnicity? How are they organized? Circles? Not? Are they alone? Why are they alone? And these, you know, whereas when we're just building a sand tray or uh, the, those members of the community are building a sand tray, it, how you arrange the sand tray is, is unconscious. But our process is then to make it conscious. And what we're really looking for is shared purpose. Every person who's in a particular neighborhood or in a particular community has an underlying purpose of why they're there, why they're attracted to, what's the energy, what's the gravity. But that gravity is generally not made explicit. And so Shantry gives us this, this, this lens into viewing and understanding community, the way the community itself sees it, and what is this really core purpose, this core values, this core beliefs. You know, um, Santre, as you know, because uh, you also served on uh, the Commonweal Board for a while, yeah. and you know that in our week-long cancer health programs, uh, we've been using Santre for over 30 years. Um, our mutual friend and colleague, Marianne Weber, has done a lot with Santre. And um, so my understanding is that Santre began as a technique of Jungian psychiatrists to work with children who couldn't yet verbally express things. I think it was Jungians. Um, yes, yeah, and yes. So uh, a question I would have is, did you, I've seen, I've seen your Santre projects where you know, you, you come in with suitcases full of little toys and things, and then you have these, uh, you set them up on tables, really, mm -hmm. and you invite people to build structures, actual physical structures with Legos and various objects and things, and they're, they're quite extraordinary. Um, so did you consciously take the Jungian concept of Santre and apply it, or were you, what, what is the origin of that 
work for you? Did yeah. it come out of that lineage or some other lineage? It, well, yeah, for, for me, it came out of, um, I was in union therapy in the 70s oh. and, and, and doing sanctuaries. And mm-hmm. uh, it was a profound experience for me. It, I, it, what I built was the model of a, of a community, interestingly. Uh, and in the center of the community was a gathering space, and it was also a space for health and healing. Mm. And then to the outskirts of that structure was a spiritual space. Um, and I've always held that as being uh, my image of who I am. Mm. Um, what I didn't know is, could you apply it to groups? And when, uh, Jennifer, why don't you tell the story of when we had the vice minister here in this building uh, in 1980 when he came to, and his entourage. Do you want to share that story? No, we had um, a U.S.-China exchange program among medical people and scientists. And they were here for a few days uh, meeting. And these were deans and um, leadership people from both sides. And for the longest time, maybe at least over a day, they're talking about primary health care, but not coming to any understanding mm-hmm. or clarity. And so we had this idea that maybe if um, we could take what was visually there on the table, which was fruit, um, we can just have it visually understood. It was just an instinct. And then we discovered that the Chinese are always talking, or at that time, and, and subsequent model building and um, century sessions we've had with them, they built structures, mm-hmm. community health centers, all the way up to the research institution. It was always a building. And they did have the threads. The, um, I think they had some yarn that they connected everyone. But the American um, leadership was talking about a doctor talking to a patient, primary health care. And so that's why we discovered that same words, different meaning. And then we didn't get anywhere as a result until they saw visually that there's a total disconnect and differences in concepts. That's fascinating. I want to take a little diversion here to ask a question I don't know the answer to. Do either of you happen to know, I I know from studies of neurology, actually, that Chinese language is stored somewhat differently in the brain from Western language, Mm -hmm. partly because of the tonalities and so forth that Mm -hmm. are used to convey significance. But I wonder if the the letters themselves uh, require um, the picture side of the brain as opposed Mm -hmm. to the Western language. I just wonder whether, because what the, the train of thought was, um, you you describe how the Chinese began to build these different buildings, right? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, there's the difference between doctor-patient and buildings. But secondly, there's the question of whether, and I don't know if anybody knows this, because I know that some people think in pictures and other mm-hmm. people think in words. Mm-hmm. I know that. Mm-hmm. I happen to be a word person, but I have many friends who think in pictures. I wonder if the Chinese language and so forth privileges the power to think in pictures. Do you happen to know that or not? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, 
The Chinese word, I'll give an example. The Chinese word uh, for perseverance mm -hmm. is ren. Mm -hmm. uh, and ren, if you look at the character, mm -hmm. it's part of the character is the heart. Mm -hmm. And then right aligned to the heart is the knife. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the notion of perseverance means that you have to be really careful with your emotions. Mm-hmm. Or you'll get hurt. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, the notion of perseverance means that you have to undertake the sense of accept the suffering, accept the, the pain, but not to go and, and become so, so agitated that you're gonna hurt yourself. Mm. Um, they, the, the Chinese character for uh, the family is, you know, the a roof with the pig. Mm -hmm. And there's no Chinese family. A roof with a what? A, a, a roof with a pig. With a pig. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Because there's no, I mean, food is like really important for right. the Chinese <laughs> culture. I mean, it's like just the yeah. first thing they ask me is what do you eat, right? I mean, mm -hmm. that's, just, mm -hmm. that's just, it's really beautiful. It's wonderful. Mm -hmm. But... Um, it is the notion that the most important thing in, 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 in a family structure is having food, is mm -hmm. having protection, right? These are, these are elements, the visual elements, which we grew up with and that we live with. Jennifer, you probably, I'm sure you have lots of examples. Well, I, I don't know any scientific uh, of this, but I think that we all come from a place where being visual is important, and that symbology is carried through to us. Um, and then those of us who've had to um, learn from the West, the, the words, I love words too, mm -hmm. but it means something entirely different. And that legacy of uh, pictorial images is part of our DNA, whether we notice, notice mm -hmm. it or, or know it or not. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what binds us because we might not even know um, auditorily what the, the other Chinese is speaking, depending on the region you come from. But if you write that word, we know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I wasn't actually planning to go here this soon, but I'll come back to the work. But as I mentioned to both of you, part of what interests me in these conversations is what I call spiritual biography. Mm -hmm. yeah. Basically, not in the sense of, quote, spiritual, but... The, the biography of the evolution of the human spirit in mm. people. So, Jennifer, um, if I started with you, um, where were you born and raised? I was born in Porchester, New York. Okay. And I grew up there, but I also, every weekend, almost every weekend, we went to New York Chinatown, so that also was part of my upbringing, but a completely different sense, because my mother refused to speak English because she didn't want me to lose that ability to communicate with her. Mm -hmm. And she knew a few words, but basically she survived because we helped her. Mm -hmm. I was the only one born here in, in my family. And so I was a conduit to anything that they had to do. I mean, they had help in Chinatown with friends and relatives, mm -hmm. but basically- How did I, your father make a living? He was uh, a chef for a while, but then when we came- He was what? A chef in Chinatown, yeah, New York mm -hmm, Chinatown. Okay. But when he knew, uh, and then he was drafted to the army because mm -hmm. I believe he volunteered because they needed 
cooks. Mm-hmm. And after that, he came back and, just, and uh, knew that my mother and three brothers would be able to join him here in the United States. Mm-hmm. And so he um, looked in the Chinese newspaper, because the only time, at that time, he thought, and other Chinese too, that the only two professions you can have or, or ways of supporting yourself was mm-hmm. to be a restaurant worker mm-hmm. or to be a laundry worker. So mm-hmm. he signed up to buy this laundry in Portchester, New York. It was mm-hmm. at the end of a cable car at that time. Mm-hmm. And because he knew that he could have my parents, uh, my, my, uh, he and my mother and, and our family could live in behind the laundry. Mm-hmm. That was accepted at that time, and that's what a lot of people did. Mm-hmm. Um, because if he had stayed a cook, there were the single room occupancies. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, that would be even more crowded and difficult mm-hmm. for us. Mm-hmm. But... Um, in the laundry, there was the work in front, and behind that curtain, there was the body of family. And we accepted a lot of relatives who came from China until they were able to survive on their own. But we introduced, my parents introduced them, people fed them, and they could stay as long as they could and wanted with us. So what was it like for you growing up in Portchester as probably one of the few Chinese families in town? Yes, I think there was another restaurant owner. I would say there were less than five that mm-hmm. I knew about. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a Japanese family, too. Mm-hmm. Um, it was difficult. Mm-hmm. I think I did not know there was any difference mm-hmm. because we uh, spoke only Chinese at home. We had a happy life. Okay. We all helped each other. Mm-hmm. And there was always uh, relatives who made us happy, mm-hmm. <laughs> who visited. But when I went to school, it was a totally different experience because I saw people that were... I didn't know I was different from anyone, but then I couldn't understand them because I didn't speak English mm-hmm. in kindergarten. But um, somehow it just came into myself. And... Um, so did you go through high school in Portchester? Yes, I did. Uh-huh. Were you, did you end up being good at school? Yeah. Hmm? I, I, I don't want to say that, but fairly okay. Mm-hmm. And what did you do after high school? I went to college. Where? At New York University. That's where I met Hanmin. Uh-huh. At NYU in New York? Yes. And what were you studying at? I was studying art because I always loved uh-huh. art. Okay. I was an art history major. And when you met Han Min, what was your first impression of him? Well, I didn't really want to go, but um, a woman who lived above me in the dorm insisted I go. Go where? To a blind date. Oh. (laughs) You had a blind date. (laughs) (laughs) To me. And so, I was, there's a lot going on at that time because my parents still had this feeling that I should have a arranged marriage. They tried it, my brother. It was terrible. It was Mm -hmm. not successful. Mm -hmm. I saw that whole thing. I didn't want to go through it myself. Mm -hmm. But I think they had that in their minds because that was their duty. So um, when I met Han Mi and I think I was going through all this and I was trying to actually concentrate my studies and I didn't really know how to date people. Not really. Not like some of my girlfriends in high school in Porchester. I mean, 
I saw them go through that phase and, or that development. I just wasn't part of it. Mm. So I still knew at it. Mm. I'm not quite sure how I thought about it other than I was trying to make a commitment to this woman who lived above me. <laughs> and, and what did you think at the end of the blind date? This is to be a very difficult but interesting person because mm-hmm. at that time he was already organizing in the Lower East Side mm. uh, with uh, working with African and uh, American and uh, Puerto Rican mothers in mm. uh, health in the schools. And he was doing, um, with his um, classmates, plays in all mm-hmm. the public schools mm-hmm. about dental health. And they made up these plays and those kids really responded. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So difficult but interesting. Difficult, yes, because um, he really believed very strongly about things, and I was um, more forming. Mm-hmm. And because I had the uh, cultural conflicts of mostly my mother. My father is pretty mm-hmm. wonderful about mm-hmm. everything, but mm-hmm. he did have to adhere to the customs. Mm-hmm. So um, I guess my mother was more in my being at that time than anyone else, and I was trying to reconcile the two cultures with her. Mm-hmm. So, how did your relationship evolve after the blind date? Well, I was recruited to work with everyone else, and, the- and then I loved it. Uh-huh. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we had an understanding in that we always um, felt there, was, there were people especially um, immigrants like my parent, my family, who really needed more compassion, uh, more understanding, and more love in their lives. Mm. They were so afraid that, um, well, relatives may die in China, or um, they might have to go home and may not be able to remain here. Or um, there was always a feeling of insecurity. Uh, although my father was an anchor because of the food, he, they both, my mother and father both decided he was a better cook. He cooked every meal uh, that I know of that I'm uh, growing up, although my mother did bake. So, um, it was, it's still a constant, continual process of what it means to be Chinese for me. I pretty much know what it means to be American because that was part of my life every day. But I did, when I did step into my home, it became China, but I didn't really know the China. And some people, like my brother, never really left China. So I, I kind of know what that is, but not having grown there, you really don't know. And you don't really know the legacy of the culture. You only know parts of it, and that's part of you, being a bicultural person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So, Hanman, what I know of you, I know a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, but m- what I understand is that your father was a power broker in Chinatown. Mm-hmm. I think I saw a photograph, in fact, maybe it's up on the wall there, uh, of yeah. your father with yeah. Kennedy yeah. shaking hands with him. Mm-hmm. 
So, and I know that you grew up in this exquisitely beautiful building, which you've renovated for the Wildflowers Institute on the ground floor and your home on the on next floor. Um, you grew up right here at the edge of Chinatown. Um, and, um, and having been on the board, I've been able to witness your, both of your fluency between friends and neighbors and people you work with in Chinatown, and, uh, but also complete at-homeness in and fluency in the, in the main culture. Um, so that's as much as I... And I know that your grandmother took care of you and you used to spend time with your grandmother on the upper floor. If I remember looking yeah. out the window with her. Yeah. 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 So that's the sum total of my knowledge. But <laughs> help me with how many generations back does your family go in the United States? My grandfather came mm-hmm. uh, to the United States in the late 1800s and my grandmother came. And mm-hmm. my grandfather was a freedom fighter. Mm-hmm. He was really strongly, uh, he was convinced that the, um, the imperial China um, and the feudal system really had to change. And mm-hmm. he was a strong, strong voice for democracy. Mm-hmm. And so uh, in the late 1800s, he and my grandmother came. He was a working class seamstress. And my, and my grandmother, he had a bit of a, of a you know storefront that they had uh, together, um, and that's probably how you know, my you know, so that's how it started uh, in terms of our uh, our lineage here in the United States. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Hanman Liu and Jennifer May, hosted by Michael Lerner. Um, if you look at our Chinese name and the character, going back to the pictorials. Uh, the Liu character has two um, swords, and it's, it's really referencing a warrior. And I'm not sure how comfortable I was, and I'm not sure I am now, about holding that as part of my own archetype. But in many ways, I guess that is the story of my life, that it's been about standing up to issues and trying to do it in a way that, for me, isn't just the fight, but it's, but it's what happens after the fight, after we win the fight, right? What happens then? And so you know, the work of wildfires is to harness the energy, to heal, to repair, to grow, to nourish, you know, to protect. Um, but by my own evolution or my own development in to where I am today is really starts with my grandmother. I mean, she, Chinese is my first language. And it was there that I learned the power of love. Mm-hmm. And it was there that I learned the power of play and discovery. And so if you fast forward today, part of my fascination with the Tenderloin is that I, I see elements of love and I see a whole lot of elements of creativity and discovery in that neighborhood. On the other hand, I also see the other side of the, you know, of the work uh, and of life, which is the competing, succeeding, it's pushing, it's fighting, and it's kind of making things happen and 
maybe it's uh, you know, not everyone is on board, um, generally not. And, but that too is a part of the life. And so for me, the early introduction to this more connected world. I mean, I would get up every morning, run into my grandmother's room and jump into her bed, and then we, I'd pretend like I was sleeping with her, right? Mm-hmm. It was this, it was, we spent almost all of our time together for my first three or four years. Mm-hmm. It was a totally, I mean, I felt I was, and at the time, I don't know how much, I mean, I, you know, my father was a dentist in Chinatown, but I think he was just beginning to start up and he was so active in his own politics that I didn't see very much of him. So what I experienced was just lots of love, a lot of being connected, a lot of play, and a lot of imagination. So we would stand, we would sit out in the front room on the second floor looking on the streets and, and beginning to construct stories of people walking by. And my grandmother would have a big ball of string that was, you know, probably about this big and had a bunch of knots in it. And she and I would just sit there and begin to untie the knots. And it was, it was a, and I, I did it for years. And they, what, what I learned from her is this, the patience. And when you're dealing with knots, you can't, you can't put force in it. It, is, it really is the opposite, right? You have, to, you have to find the place where it's going to give. And it's sometimes really hard because the, the knots are really tight. But it will give. And you just have to work at it and work at it. So there's some wonderful teachings. Even though when I went to China, when I went to elementary school, uh, kindergarten, I didn't speak English. For me, I felt I had a, I had a development of myself that it still remains with me today. And I couldn't be more, in some ways, I don't know the words privileged, but I couldn't be more um, rewarded by the experiences I had with my grandmother. Uh, but I couldn't read. I couldn't write. I could. I didn't know math. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was like totally. You know, it was something I just had to begin to struggle to learn. But I learned something else. And so, in the work that I do today with the wildflowers, it's the informal, which is really rooted in my grandmother, my experience with my grandmother. I see the power of that, and I see the power of that in every family, and in every community. Um, it's just we don't, you know, in, in society, we don't put a value to it. But I actually think it's really valuable. This is beautiful. This is just what I hoped we would do. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. So uh, please take a little more time before we go back to the work, as I did with Jennifer. I just do want to have both of your histories. So you went to kindergarten and grade school here. Uh, what... What was your school experience like from start to the end of high school? Uh, for me, it was a huge adjustment. I mean, when I look at photographs of myself in elementary school, um, it was, if I would, and I look at them from time to time now, I would say where I am today looking at these photographs, this is a child that was really having a really hard time. Yeah. It was, uh, I was in a a school that, like Jennifer, maybe there was one or two other uh, Asians and maybe another three or four people of color. Mm. And so all the way through elementary school, it was um, 
like I just kind of didn't get it, you know, for a long time. I feel, why aren't you like my grandmother? You know, why aren't you learning mm. people just loving? You know, why mm. is this? I didn't just, but it was that, but it was that experience, you know, going back to the Chinese character for perseverance, mm. right? Um, just that's what gave me the experience. Gave me the the will. The experience helped me see my own will. To, to stay in it, and to um, to make it, you know what it is today, and it's yeah, you know, it's pretty good. Yeah. Mm. So, where, did you go to high school here? And yeah, I went to Lowell High School. Uh-huh. Uh, I went to Marina uh, Junior High School, and then to Lowell. Um, I don't think I was. I did very well in Lowell. I mean, at Lowell, my class at Lowell was a class that. You really didn't have to uh, take tests to get in. I don't think I would have gotten in had I um, uh, had I had to take an examination to get into the school. Um, but I gained a different kind of intelligence, I think, uh, throughout my time um, here in San Francisco through high school and then in college abroad. And that's really from experience. You know, mm-hmm. it's just getting into the mix of a, a very interesting problem and living with that problem sometimes for years. So was Lowell as overwhelmingly white as the uh, earlier school? Some, but not as much as. But by then I I was socialized. I was Mm -hmm. socialized to be more engaged with European Americans. Mm -hmm. And in a way I I valued that even more. You know, I Mm -hmm. thought, well, it'd be, it's cooler. But then I spent um, a period of my life um, going in the opposite direction. I was in Chinatown, and I got involved in gangs, and mm-hmm. we hang out with gangs maybe for three or four years. And then my father got really sick. He, he came down with a diagnosis of leukemia. So I decided, you know, what I need to do for him is to let him know that before he dies, I'm, gonna, I'm going to try to be the other side of the, uh, you know, the equation. That's something that he would value. That so when you got involved with gangs, you, you were being a rebel. You were being, yeah. uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. And how did you do with the gang? Pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Were you valued there? Uh, yeah, but I was, you know, they, no, but not entirely. Okay. You know, you're in, in, in when, I think this is, not, I, mean, I don't know how common this is, but I was going to say it is common, but I really don't know. Mm-hmm. I've not studied it. But I think they, from my experience, you're, um, the narrative about myself is that I'm almost, I, I am in this kind of middle space. You know, I'm in mm-hmm. this third space. And I mm-hmm. think uh, maybe Jennifer is as well, but I can certainly say I am. But I turn that into a strength of trying to be in that middle space but bringing different spaces together. So did your sense of political consciousness, for want of a better word, but social and political consciousness begin to emerge during your years at Lowell? Uh, no, it was, I don't think so. I think I was, you know, struggling with my father. I was 16 when my father died. Mm. You know, I was kind of junior okay. high school and I was still kind of getting off of the gangs and not knowing my footing at Lowell. So um, I was just trying to find my, uh, find my, I think when I went, went to college at the University of Pacific, I, it was, uh, that's when I began to. And there was then the 60s and there was a movement at that time. And that's when I began to, See, I just felt that there was this injustice that 
uh, wasn't right, you know, uh, partially because I've experienced myself, but partially I see it even more exaggerated than other people of color. And so I started getting involved in, in when I was in college and then, you know, started. So tell me about the University of the Pacific. What, mm-hmm. what kind of experience did you have there? The experience was, um, it was, it was okay. I mean, it was, it, the first years was really rocky for me because I hadn't studied very much and I was mm-hmm. still finding my way. And then the last few years I actually did really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, for me, the, the tipping point to shift in terms of my own intellectual development was that, um, you know, I, I started traveling and, and through that travel, I began to see that I had a responsibility to be more than just for myself, that it was really for other people. Mm-hmm. Um, but the experience that more broadly at the University of Pacific was that it's a shelter time. It's Stockton, it's quiet, it's, you know, it's mm-hmm. somewhat rural. Um, it's not highly competitive. And I wanted to, you know, I, you know, I made a promise to my father that I would be a dentist before he died. So, you know, I wanted to try to fulfill that promise to him. And um, so I got pretty strongly focused on my academics and did well enough to go to, to, go to dental school at NYU and then. And that's where the two of you met. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So before we leave your childhood, um, a question about the gangs. Were those structured on the, what are the Chinese families called? Yeah, the Tongs. The yeah, Tongs. Yeah. Were the gangs no, Tong gangs? No, they, they, no, we weren't. Although we were, the, our, the older brothers were involved in Tongs. So um, these were kind of feeder networks yeah, yeah. into the Tong gang? Yeah, right. Okay. Right, right. So given that your father was something of a power broker, how significant a power broker was he in Chinatown? Oh, I, to my recollection, I mean, I think he was... He was the um, he was the person the Adelaide Stevens went to to introduce the community to to okay. Stevenson. Same with Kennedy, uh, and I know both of those because they came to our. I mean, this is part of our family, you know, kind of history. It probably was even earlier than that, but I don't know. I don't remember that. So your father was actually major power broker in Chinatown. Um, when he died, when you were 16, did it leave the family in a difficult financial situation, or were you okay? Yeah, uh, I didn't know, you know, when I was 16, and um, my feeling was we did, yeah, it was really a problem financially. Uh, my mother um, took on the financial responsibility, she had didn't even write checks before my father passed away. My father took care of all the finances. So my mother found herself really worried about, well, you know, yes, I, the, the, there's, there's some, there is uh, some resources available now that, you know, uh, my father passed away, but she was very insecure about it. And so she just didn't spend, you know, for her it was like, I don't know what's gonna happen in the future, so I'm just not gonna spend. Mm. And that was kind of a practice of hers. Um, so I started working. Um, most of my college career I worked through in the evenings, and in graduate school I worked, and after graduate school I've been working since then. What kind of jobs? 
Um, I was working in, I served uh, in, uh, in sororities. I was, you know, uh, doing, you know, bus work. And then um, that was mostly in college, throughout all of college. And then when I went to dental school in NYU, I was invited to work at a hospital in the evenings to do um, some forms of dental assistant, but not quite being a dental assistant, but mm-hmm. some they helping young kids, Puerto Ricans mostly, um, get them, you know, do x-rays and, and, and the likes, uh, um, kind of early uh, care uh, for them or to them and with them. Um, so, and I did that for all four years. Uh, I also, then I got, you know, then I got into, um, uh, once I graduated from school, then I you know, started working at a hospital and then... Uh, so I'm curious how you and Jennifer are seen in Chinatown, given this family history of yours, where your father was a very significant person and you've created this kind of portal that sits at the edge of Chinatown, but is kind of a global portal. I mean, you've, how many years did you serve on the board of the Kellogg Foundation? Was it? Yeah, 20 years. 20 years yeah. on the board of the Kellogg Foundation. and yeah. And... Um, just from knowing you, uh, you and Jennifer have this global reach, um, but very strong networks to these communities that you've worked with. Um, so I'm just curious, not that there's a single perspective, but do you have a sense of how, how you experience yourselves in relationship to the Chinese diaspora, but particularly to Chinatown, and how Chinatown experiences you. Yeah, it's hard to question that the latter is hard yeah, because yeah. you'd have to ask them, you yeah, know, but yeah, yeah. to get the real answer. But yeah. I think how we experience is that uh, we're here to provide a helping hand, and mm-hmm. we're here, and we are uh, the we have through my father uh, and his practice, there were many of his patients who knows us because mm-hmm. uh, of their, uh, their seeing him and, or him being uh, their dentist. And many of them, they have passed away now, but most all of them have played some important role, like Kim Akalai, who's really strongly reared. He's a, our, one of our greatest local historians. Uh, he was an engineer. He worked, I think, Bechtel during the daytime, but his passion, his love was around Chinese history, and particularly around the, Cant- uh, the Canton and the Delta area. Um, he was instrumental in, in forming uh, some of the major, uh, uh, both historical and cultural groups in, in, in Chinatown. Um, he, for example, would be uh, one that, I remember he'd tell stories about my father and him being a patient, but also he was really close to us. And so when we, when we came back here in San Francisco and started to, uh, uh, in 1978, and started to reside here, we found ourselves um, with a reasonably uh, amenable group of people who have had, um, you know, a long history with, with my family. My grandfather has some calligraphy in the um, in the um, in one of the historical sites in Chinatown of around freedom and around democracy, and so he also is 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 uh, you know still revered. Um, on the other hand, we started the health center 
here at the Minan Health Center, which combined Chinese and Western medicine. And that set up a, a market competition. And so that what we found was that the doctors in particular really were, they were just worried, would we take their patients from them? Would we, you know, particularly Western doctors. The Chinese doctors were all in favor of it because it was just at the emerging of herbal medicine and, Chinese, and, and acupuncture. Tell us more about that center. What was it called? It's called the Minan, which is oh, the well-being, a person's well-being. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Saja, Saja Green was, was on our, uh, was our medical director, and mm-hmm. Jennifer was the executive director of the, mm-hmm. of the health center. And uh, we provided both Chinese and Western medicine. We had an herbal store downstairs, made sure that all the herbs were, were um, came from sources that were uh, from China, but also were reputable sources. Even when we made the, the herbal cabinet that destroyed the herbs, we made sure that the glue in the cabinet didn't have preservative in it, mm-hmm. in it because we wanted to, to keep the power of these herbs. And our interest was to see, um, is it possible to have really two different modalities? Because that's been our life, right? You know, living in two worlds. And can we create this interface between the two that, that could potentially help, you know, both sides? Jennifer, what was your experience of that enterprise? It was wonderful. Mm-hmm. We loved the people mm-hmm. that we worked with. Mm-hmm. And we loved our patients, too. Mm-hmm. We made sure they get, sure they receive the best care. And we were fortunate to have Saja, who was wonderful in every way. Um, Saja Greenwood, who's yes. a physician, lives in Bolinas, longtime friend of all of ours, and uh, author of an important book. Not a false part, naturally. Yeah, yeah and, and probably beyond that, too. Yeah, but I know yeah. that was, yeah, that drew yeah. right. And what years was that? Oh, my goodness. I think it started uh, in 1979. It ended mm-hmm. 10 years later because mm-hmm. everyone grew um, to want to do other things. And also it was all precipitated because the healthcare um, modality of payments had changed mm-hmm. and uh, HMOs. And so it was a parting that was sad. Mm-hmm. We had over 4,000 patients. Wow. Yeah. So that, after your father being the dentist, and you start this integrative Chinese-Western medicine thing and run that for 10 years and have 20,000 patients. So just in terms of perception of both of you now, it's yeah. an interesting yeah. uh, next step. So was that the point soon after that that you started the Wildflowers Institute? Yeah, the, the, in 1996 is when we started it. That, by then, we were involved with, um, in addition to the work here at the health center, um, um, I found myself really interested in uh, building a network in China that would foster collaboration between the medical schools. And we had 21 medical schools in the United States, UCSF, Stanford, um, Harvard, Yale, a variety of different institutions were, uh, medical institutions were involved in this exchange program between um, the, uh, the two Chinese, uh, the Chinese and Western institutions. Um, and we particularly focused the exchange program on first Beijing Medical University, which is now a part of Beida or Beijing University. And it is one of the premier institutions uh, among, among several, really. It's 
not the only, but it's really. And our our hope was, and our thinking was that well, might we influence the development of that, of their building their capacity so that they can improve their science and improve their improve their services. It was a capacity building strategy. Uh, so that was, uh, and then we, through the sister city, San Francisco, Shanghai, we got involved with the Shanghai Municipal Health Bureau. And then from that, we fostered a whole set of exchange programs between Shanghai and, and San Francisco, UCSF, uh, and Pacific Presbyterian at the time, uh, PMC. Then, um, then that grew to the... Um, the Chinese World Bank and then the Ministry of Health had a lot of interest in our approach, which was that what we saw in the exchange was that there was a cultural difference between the, the way the Chinese thought about learning and what they were, um, what, what they had come here to learn was so different than the way the Americans had thought about it that you know, we would get phone calls after we start the exchange for the Americans saying, you know, I don't know, this is not what I expected. You know? And so as we began to dig deeper and understand that, that's when we began to understand, see that culture, um, how the Chinese think about um, you know, the, the development of knowledge and how that happens uh, and the process, right? That's really the how, uh, is so different than the American. The Americans say, hey, look, here's your, here's a laboratory, you know, here's some equipment, do what you like, you know, ask the questions you want to ask and come and talk to me when you want to and got some questions, you know. Now, that's not the way the Chinese um, were expecting. They expect, you know, you come in and you're really instructed uh, on a day-by-day basis on how to begin to think in a more deeply scientific way uh, to to improve your capacity and skills. And uh, so we would, that would be an example of the cultural differences and but we did, we held this, we, we put this exchange program and we held these set of relationships together from 1979 to 1996. And that's when I felt that it was just, um, I wasn't seeing the impact. I, I mean, if you look today, I mean, we were involved pretty, pretty, in a pretty significant way. I won't say the only way, the only institution. But we, we had maybe four or five million dollars of exchange activities going on between the two countries. So uh, we had some voice and influence in the development of their infrastructure of Chinese medicine and then in Chinese education throughout all of China. But I didn't see the impact on how it affected people's lives. It just, it was, it was too, too high level, just too macro. You know? Yeah, we could see the numbers and we could see that, yeah, this person would be trained at Albert Einstein and suddenly became the chancellor of the university there. This person who was at Stanford then becomes a vice minister. Yeah, that, that worked and that, that, there, there's progress and that's in, impact. But what we didn't see was, so, but what did they do that was different, right? Did, what, did they, did, what did they learn here that would be? And that's when I decided um, I was looking for another, another laboratory to learn. So when did you have, how did the initial gem of the idea, the seed of the idea for wildflowers come to you? Do you remember the moment when you 
Yeah, I do. Tell us about it. Yeah, I was, you know, uh, in 1996, I was invited to serve uh, on the board of the Kellogg Foundation. Mm -hmm. They had seen my work in China. They had sponsored, supported us for about 10 years. Mm -hmm. And then, so they kind of had a pretty good feeling for Mm -hmm. uh, our work, the quality of our work. And so um, I was in a board meeting at Kellogg two years after being on the board. And we go, the board meets every month for for it's a big for, commitment for two days it's a big commitment a huge commitment for i mean th- 30 years did you tell me 20 years 20 years huge commitment yeah. i mean it's just and but what i found myself doing in, the, in that time was to really diving in and looking at philanthropy yeah. and and deeply and um and then i, I remember there was a vice president at kellogg who said he kept talking about communities, but I said, you know, he's not talking at all about the community that, I, that I'm seeing. And I don't know whether it's just me or whether it's, but just, you know, he, he would say, well, there's capacity building. What we have to do is strengthen the nonprofit sector. And what we're going to do is to help with the capacity of a board. And, you know, and I say, wow. I mean, you know, in Chinatown, a lot of that stuff had, doesn't even have, they don't even have ports. But yet they're doing some amazing things. And so that led me to say, I need to understand really what's happening, and I need to go beyond just my own assumptions about this, but to actually delve more deeply. And so, over time, over you know, it's now some some forty years, but um, we have had experience in nineteen communities to learn from them. I mean, and we're invited in. We don't give them very much funding. If uh, probably most communities, we don't provide any funding to. But what we do is we invite them into a fellowship. We meet monthly. We learn from them. They learn from us. And through that learning, we've come to see that a community is an adaptive system. It's it's a living system. It's not just a building set of buildings and a park and a grocery store and a pharmacy. Uh, it's much more than that. It's, it's this relationship that happens between and among people. And that generates a quality of energy that's either healing or it's destructive. That is informative and imaginative you know, or oppressive. But there is this energy in a community. And that's... And that, you know, that, that this... And we've learned this from them. This is not... You know, this, what was really important as we started into this work in 1996 was we're not going to look for the answer to make change. What we want to look for is the evidence that change already happens in the community. I really like that. Yeah, I mean, because that, I mean, yeah, if it's I working, really like then we build on it. And there's that process, the incredible power of witness. Yeah. The incredible power of witness. I have a friend at Commonweal, uh, Jennifer Stoll, who was talking about, uh, she's been on the staff of the Cancer Health Program with me for 30 years. And the staff, a lot of us have worked together for 30 years. And she said this beautiful thing. She said, you know, I think one of the things we've done together on the staff is to see each other into being. Yeah. That the staff, mm. that we have seen each well, other into being. Mm. And wow. that, and you know this as well as I do, that that, that power of compassionate witness, mm-hmm. you're not trying to change anything necessarily. 
but you care about it and you're curious about it and you want to learn from it and you want to learn what the aspirations are, what the hopes are, what the achievements are and, and see it into being by participating in it. That's beautiful. Yeah. That's really, that's, yeah. that's just spot on. Yeah. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Hanmin Liu and Jennifer May, hosted by Michael Lerner. What do you think, Jennifer? Well, I love Jennifer's doll, so <laughs> anything she says is yeah, okay with me. <laughs> uh, no, I think um, we are all in the process of discovery, mm-hmm. and when you learn, when you come to know that, it helps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd like to say, you know, in terms of discovery, that's really, and I just want to raise up Marion Weber again. Mm -hmm. Uh, She is uh, truly a person who has helped us see the, not not the importance of discovery, um, that, that, but it's more of the, the, that that is so pervasive. because through a process of discovery, it is this evolution that happens, right? And, it's, it, and that should be our model for, you know, the notion of discovery, the notion of being, um, and the will to be, the will to be better, the will to be better towards others, more loving, more, more helpful, more embracing, more, you know. That's, that's where I think we should be focusing on. And so recently we've been thinking, it's, re- it's, it's about the environment that nurtures that. You do it at Commonweal, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that, that's what Commonweal is. It's, 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 that, it's that environment in which um, you can manifest yourself. You can come into your own manifestation of yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a natural process. I mean, I like the word metamorphosis more than transformation. Mm-hmm. Because metamorphosis is a natural process, right? Mm-hmm. It's, and I believe that we are all in this process. It's just what are the conditions that fosters that metamorphosis mm-hmm. for us to be even more than who we are today? So there are so many pieces of the work that we could focus in on, but let's, because what is happening right now is always most alive. After years of working with ethnically coherent diaspora communities of color for the most part, uh, where you were working with, uh, you know, the, the aspirations and the found assets of these different communities. Perhaps we'll have a chance to get back to them. But, but um, then you took on, while well, I've been on your board, uh, this amazing challenge of finding the hidden gems, the artists who live in the tenderloin, uh, District of San Francisco, which you're quite close to. Um, and this is a very challenged part of the uh, city with um, a, a lot of uh, uh, difficulties. And you decided that you wanted to see what happened if you started identifying a lot of people living on the streets or living in, you know, single occupancy hotels or whatever, who uh, were these, who were artists. And I've watched you do this. 
<laughs> so tell us about that. Tell yeah. us about the Hidden Gems project. Yeah. We started three years ago mm -hmm. uh, with the question of how many artists are in the, are in the neighborhood and who live and work in the Tenderloin. That, that was just the one question we held. And we want to know an answer to it. There was a lot of debate about it. The artists are being evicted, artists are being displaced, their gentrification happened. But we wanted to know, uh, is this, uh, what's the reality of this? And that led us down, you know, the, the rabbit's hole, so to speak, to a beginning to see uh, underneath. Many of the artists in the Tenderloin, are, you know, when we talk about artists, we think, well, it's someone who, you know, is living there because they can't afford anything else. But someday they're going to become Andy Warhol or they're going to be, you know, the Frank Gehry of the architecture. So that's not the artist that, that we mean. I'm not saying that the, the one is better than the other, but that what we're talking about, what we begin to see and, and learn about in the artists in the community, in the Tenderloin, is that this is a group of very creative people who have, who have, who have chosen to use art as their way to express themselves. And through that context of art, it's healing. And there again, we learned it from Marion. I mean, it's, it, it was, um, I mean, I, I don't think we could have gotten there as quickly or as deeply without her, really. The, the work that we did was to find and map the artists, but it was really hard, right? Because we're going in the SROs, and I remember one story we heard from, um, you know, we, well, uh, I'll first tell how we did it, and then I'll tell you the story. How we did it was we, we found trusted scouts. We identified trusted scouts, informal leaders who were well-respected in the community. We asked them to do the survey, because if we were going to do the survey, they closed the door on us, right? I mean, they said, who the hell are you? I don't know you, you know, what's, uh, so why are you here? Why are you asking me questions? You know, I'm not, uh, so, but through the informal leaders, they went and they covered canvases, some 30 SROs, thousands and thousands of people. And they would even come up with some challenges. You know, sometimes they'd open the door and this guy would have a samurai, you know, uh, half open, saying, who are you? You know, what are you? And they, but because of them and they're all, and they're living in the neighborhood, that, yeah, they were just fine with it. They just said, oh, you know, well, you know, I'm here. I, I, you know, I'm also a resident, and we just have a couple of questions to ask you. As, as we began to accumulate the, 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 the data, what we began to see is, you know, there are over five, 600 artists who are living and working, which is, I mean, we need to think there were 30. Five or 600, how big is the community? It's uh, about 26,000. 26,000. Census. Right. 26,000. How big physically is it? How many blocks? Uh, it's, oh, I don't know. Uh, yeah. yeah, I don't the have borders that. borders yeah. Gary and Market and Van Ness and Mason. Okay. Right. That's the right. border. Right. Now, this is uh, 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 only from the 30. Uh, there are over 100 SROs. So this is only, the, so we came up with 600 plus. And that's when we began to go back into uh, and begin to interview the artists knocking on the doors, introducing ourselves. And what we offered was, um, we'd like to invite them to participate in, in an award ceremony, um, offering them $1,000 uh, if they would submit a piece of artwork. And, um, and if they uh, had some uh, story about them both themselves and the neighborhood. 
And so we had over, what, 100? Over 100 submissions. Yeah, and then out of that, um, they, you know, we, we, we awarded, with the selection committee, awarded about 60. 60. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, of thousand. So we, you know, we spent uh, the grant. The, the, um, each person received a thousand dollar award. And you did this amazing award ceremony at the, what's the name of the center? Yeah, Kelly Kong uh, Center. Yeah, they, uh, which was an old YMCA, which is really interesting. Right. It's this transformation, right? It, mm-hmm. Now the Kelly Kong is an SRO. Hmm. Right? And it, it's, um, you know, it's, it, that is transformation, not a matter of morphous, but that's transformation, right. you know, because it's not, it's, it's engineered in part. It's not, you know, it's not a natural process of change. So you had musicians, you had poets, just all kinds of people. Yeah, we did. And it was, it was great. I mean, like there was one video where it starts with this, this black guy who's knocking on this door in, in an SRO, you know, and it's all silent, right? You just got knocking mm-hmm. on, he's got a t-shirt on, he's pretty well built and you know he's got an energy to the knock right this guy this this white fellow opens up the door looks him in the eye slams the door right and uh, this black guy looks looks at the door you know obviously he's really pissed off right then turns around walks back in his room and then he goes to his bookshelf and takes out a gun <laughs> and, then, and then he goes underneath his bed takes out a rifle <laughs> goes in his closet and opens up suitcases, he's got more ammunition and rifles and arms, right? And, and suddenly you see this whole thing going on. It's really, it's really amazing. And it's, it's a five-minute clip. And, but the way it turns out is what he's looking for is, um, is the bullets so he can put in the zero. So he can... <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, you can't, this is the penalty. It's totally, totally cool. Right? I mean, this, uh, this stuff like that came out that was just, you know, there was, uh, you know, you want to you talk about Shannon's piece? Oh, Shannon's Stag's piece? Mm-hmm. Here's a fellow who um, grew up with a, with a dad being an artist. And we, he told us when we first met him that he was feeling low. And so he jumped from a four-story building. Mm. And, um, but he survived because he was told that if he really wanted to do a job, he had to have six floors. <laughs> but he is a very young, talented uh, individual and artist, and he does a lot of lettering in his work. So he submitted a piece called There Isn't Any Progress Without Spiritual Progress. Mm. So he had that on his whole canvas. Mm. But in those letterings, he had angels, a mythical dog yeah. who had healing powers, and a mom with two children protecting them. You couldn't see it and unless he showed it to you. He shone the light on it, and then we saw it. Mm-hmm. So people like him were just amazing. And probably very few people knew of him and his work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So where are you taking that project now? What are the next phases? Yeah, our, our next phase is um, we want it. We see that there's a very the the artists you know right. We're, we're looking at what exists in the neighborhood, and what we're seeing is a, an amazing resource of artists 
who live there and you know the stories of the Tenderloin like no other people do. They know the day-to-day, they live it, they breathe it, that's, that's their life. And it's a source of understanding and information about the Tenderloin that really outsiders, couldn't judge for me, need to know more about because then that shifts the narrative, right? We, 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 we went into the Tenderloin not knowing, but uh, having uh, some impressions that it's dirty, it's gritty, whatever, right? That people are pissing on the streets and that all happens. But what we're seeing now as we go deeper is uh, the power of creativity, of imagination, um, of discovery. It's a formative space, you know, formative in the technical word, right? It's something even before something emerges. Uh, that's really the tenderloin. And, and you're, you were given permission to do that in the tenderloin. I mean, you could take off most of your clothes, and probably all your clothes, and walk down the tenderloin and no one would care. But you do that here in Chinatown or in you know, Russian mm. Hill or Knob Hill, you're going to get arrested. Mm. Yeah, but not in the tenderloin, because there's this permission to experiment. Mm. It's, it's the environment. It's the condition that fosters a certain. And this is a narrative we, we want to shift. In the tenderloin. So, so if if the if the if more of us from the outside can understand and appreciate the the influence that current resident artists have in creating this cultural environment of freedom to be oneself, it's really urgently important that they not be displaced. Mm-hmm. So. Let's pick another, I'll ask you both to pick another example of a community, perhaps one of the ethnic communities in which you've worked, where you really saw unfold what you hoped would unfold in your community work. What, what example would you choose? Well, um, I think Boston Chinatown was a very fascinating um, time for us. Mm-hmm. Um, I went there as a child because a lot of my relatives, we would go there during the summer, only to Chinatown. Mm-hmm. And to revisit as an adult, to meet all the people who helped it grow was fascinating in itself. But we were asked to go there by uh, Marion Tain of the Bar Foundation mm-hmm. because uh, she wanted us to ask, answer the question, what would um, green space look like? Or what were the factors that were important to Chinatown, if that were to be? Mm-hmm. And um, we were able to meet with all facets of the community. First, we we were found um, that pretty much like in the Filipino community, you have tabi tabi pu to ask for permission to go in. And um, at that time, we were told that there's leaders of the Chinda. Chin family and leaders of the Wong family. Mm. They don't necessarily get along, but you have to have permission from at least one of them to go in there. Mm-hmm. So since my mother was a Chin, I had the connections to know who that person was. Mm-hmm. And we went to see him and he said fine. Mm-hmm. And um, then we had met with all the different political groups. They don't get along at that time, maybe they do now, I hope so. Mm-hmm. 
Well, we, at the end of the project, we were able to get them all in the same room. I didn't know how hard, I didn't really know how deep the feelings were. Mm -hmm. But they have someone say, well, I can't believe that all these same minds, factions or yeah. yeah. minds mm -hmm. of um, beliefs, different minds of belief mm -hmm. are in the same room. That, that made me feel good. Mm, wonderful. Yeah, you want to talk about the outcome of the, the, the project that they did? And we did Santray with them. Yeah, we, every, yeah. every group we did yeah. Santray with. Yeah. yeah. And, well, for the elders, they had to have um, these stones in their walkways for the acupressure. Mm -hmm. And for the youth, we had uh, met with a lot of at-risk youth. And they... I was surprised, but they wanted a stage, like the Chinese opera. The storytelling. Oh. Storytelling. Yeah. Oh. yeah. So what was <laughs> yeah. the outcome of the The project? outcome was... Yeah, yeah the, the outcome with this one in between is that their vision for open space, and this is, again, this kind of yeah. cultural difference, yeah. is for the Chinese Boston Town and Chinatown, open space, green space, was a courtyard. Was a what? courtyard. Uh-huh. A Chinese courtyard. Yeah. Walls right. and the inside the wall, you'd walk in through a door, and yeah. then you would be blessed by yeah. certain certain icons, mm -hmm. right? And then in the middle, that you would have a uh, you have a transformative symbol, mm -hmm. you know, uh, transformative Buddhist symbol, and, and it, it, this was their 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 choice. Um, and then there was a, a theater where there was be storytelling, all of which is all part of Chinese culture. Yeah. So it was, interestingly, green space was not necessarily open. You know, it isn't like green space the way Americans would think about green mm -hmm. space, like, you know, you're going out in the countryside. But this is a cultivated space where Chinese would come together and somehow be spiritually connected. Uh, connected. So did it ever get built? Not entirely, though Marion offered a million dollars to it uh -huh. at the end of it, uh -huh. but it was politics. And this is where this informal and the formal yeah, section right. get up. Exactly. It, it, um, what we saw was um, the, the struggle and between the two. Right. And we, we, were, uh, we chose not to be involved after that because yeah. uh, right. our, our sense was we had too much investment mm -hmm. and that it would be too easy for us to try to push. But... Um, and we felt the community really had to hold, own it. And, 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 uh, but they, they compromised and they came up with a piece of it um, mm -hmm. between they, I think there was a, a redevelopment agency, right? Dealing with mm -hmm. them as like a whole piece of work. And then the Chinese community itself. Yeah. I, I just want to say briefly another example that, that and this, this, this goes to both uh, Eleanor Ostrom's work, which you know, we talked about at the board meeting uh, this afternoon, this morning, uh, and, uh, and also the Lao Dimian around democracy and democratic participatory democracy, is what we're finding in immigrant communities is the, the power of democracy is really amazing here. It's something that I think uh, most outsiders don't yet, and, and don't yet fully uh, appreciate unless they are directly involved every day in, in an immigrant community and how they're struggling. But the notion of freedom and participating in, coming together, solving problems, talking about the problems, working out differences, mediating differences, solving, you know, solving particular personality problems, and then coming up with a solution, 
that that is at the core of what what is uh, being American is, um, and they find themselves really quite able and uh, and to to op- to be even more open to that when they reside when they live here and will come here. So the story is around the Lagumian community, which is a group of refugees from the highlands of Laos, which is like, no one wants to live in the highlands of Laos because it's a mosquito infected, you've got ponds. I mean, it's, just, it's really tough, really, really hard living. I mean, mm-hmm. you don't think about, well, if I'm gonna relax, I'm gonna go to the highlands. You know, you go to the lowlands, but not the highlands. But this is a group of, 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 of indigenous people, tribal people who have migrated throughout Southeast Asia for thousands of years. And um, they, like the Hmong people, are, are, um, uh, have resided over the last you know, more than 100 years, I think, uh, in, in, in Laos, in the highlands of Laos. So they came here, and what they did was they organized... They came here because uh, they had sided with the U.S. Uh, in the Vietnam War, and so as a reward, they, they brought them back when it looked like they'd be massacred after we lost Exactly, yeah. exactly, through executive order. Uh, they they were um, the the all twelve clans of the Lagumian came were invited to come to America yeah. and so 1980, but but because they were scattered all over, you know the the service service agency that was assigned to uh, find housing, so the families were broken up, the clans were broken up, the leadership was broken up because it was more about well okay you're gonna live here and yeah you're gonna live over here but the assets is where it is because we got no other place to put you right. Well, uh, they were frantic, and what the leadership did was, over the course of, mm, I'm going to say, 10 years, it could have been uh, a little bit more, was they, they, they began to see that what they first had to do was to organize a structure that their, every member of the community itself would, would recognize. And the most familiar was the village life and the village structure, which had a chief of the village and a spiritual leader and had elders, uh, and, and had children who were, who were protected. So they, they modeled that and said, well, instead of us now, uh, yes, we, we're, we're in America and we're all spread out, but we still have relationships that started back in Laos. So let's call this one village back in Laos, District 1, of all the people who live here in Bay Area. Yes, they're all spread out, but they still have experiences in history with uh, living together back in Laos. And they organized that way. And How many they, villages did they own? Uh, th- this is eight villages. Eight villages. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and, and its surroundings, right? And so what they did was they, they organized that way, and, and, and the democracy part of it was that instead of having the chief of village be passed down from, from generation to generation by family members, it was actually uh, by election. And mm-hmm. this was instituted by the leadership in the... In, in the community. And then they built a temple, right? They, they were so organized. This, when you have a good structure, yeah. is something we've learned. When you have a good structure, then you can pretty much do anything. They, they built a, a, somewhere under a $2 million temple. They built over a three-quarter million dollar community center, and they bought the property. And, so, and they're now, you know, beginning to, I mean, it's, it's a really, really interesting model for all immigrants and refugees, right? You, you draw strength from your from your, from your history and your culture, you 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 build on your 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 leadership, but you adapt it to the American 
um, environment and political environment. And that structure then helps too. You ever seen a book by a guy named Joel Klotkin called Tribes? No, I heard about. Yeah. Well, it's a very interesting book. He's a, I think he's a geographer or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a history of of transnational tribes that have adopted well to the global wow. corporate world, and. Um, and, you know, and it makes me, I mean, I think obviously there are certain tribes that adopt well to the global corporate world, that are successful in terms of the global corporate world. And there are other tribes that are equally beautiful, powerful, and everything else that have a harder time. Yeah. But we all know that different ethnicities in the United States end up either running gas stations or running, you know, mm-hmm. um, or running grocery stores or, or donut shops, yeah, right, you know, right whatever right. it is, um, because as you said with your father, he had a choice between a laundry and um, restaurant, yeah, and a restaurant. And um, so, when I think of what's happening in the world and the increasing pace of change and the combination of some positive trends, you know less people in abject poverty, uh, more kids uh, getting educated, um, more public health services. Those are three positive trends globally. But then there are, I don't know what, 20, 30, 40, 50 trends, climate change and all the environmental stuff and you know increasing disparities and, and uh, everything else. And so, it seems to me that these global tribes of which your low-income diaspora communities are examples, right? Mm-hmm. Um, their continuing efforts to make their way for themselves and their communities in this very different world is one of the central stories of our time. You know? No, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. And so what it seems to me you are doing and what has attracted me to wildflowers, as you've said, um, nobody's going to do these communities any real favors, you know? And therefore, I mean, they either make it or they don't in American culture, but therefore to help them rediscover their informal capital to help them find the things that hold them together and give value, particularly given the acidity of modernity, which is constantly eroding all tradition. And when kids and grandchildren, you know, a totally different experience from the original immigrant parents that you're just trying to help these communities find what they value, what gives them strength, right? And, um, and I don't really know of any other organization or really two people who have devoted themselves for 40 years mm. to discerning that and to trying to understand the, the lessons of it. Mm. So if you were to, as we come toward a close, to try to summarize what 
you think you've learned from 40 years of this work with 19 different communities, what are the commonalities that you feel people, funders, others who want to understand what creates community strength, what are, what are some of the lessons that you feel you've learned from this work? Mm. I'll start, and then Jim. Okay, yep. uh, the uh, first and foremost is an adaptive system. Uh, the community is a set of relationships that adapts and grows. And the characteristics of that adaptation. There are five different characteristics that we that we have discerned. First, that it it is an ownership of a common resource. Uh, it could be culture. It could be knowledge. It could be land, it could be water, but it's, it's a collective ownership and a governance structure that uh, involves many people and not just a family or an individual. But it's, it's, the, um, it, it's a really an important pro part of the decision-making of a, of a community. Second is there is democratic participation. That in, in democratic meaning in small d, it isn't. It, it, it certainly it should be in the capital D meaning, you know, voting and so on, which is really important. But the small d for us is it's about it's an informal kind of discussions, work, and problem solving, and and mediation, and and conflict resolution, and sharing, and helping one another. That's 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 the second. The third part is being able to find your, your shared purpose, uh, your shared purpose among everyone. And so what, why are we all together? I mean, why, well, if we're all, some have some affinity and feel like we're connected, let's, let's name that. Let's name that purpose. And, this, and, and, and it is common, it's shared. But then to have that purpose help us, guide us towards regenerative and renewal. And when we look at the 19 communities in which we were involved in, there, there is that form of regeneration and renewal coming about through common purpose, which is really amazing. I mean, we, oftentimes, I mean, the uh, Encore is focused on uh, the purpose of the individual and she or he helping society. Here, what we're seeing is the opposite, equally important, no better and worse, but that we're seeing the, uh, the community having a shared purpose, and then helping the individual. Right? And you want to share the, the other places? Uh, well, there is always that part that I love, which is the discovery, mm -hmm. creativity, and healing. Mm -hmm. It's in every community, every person. But sometimes um, the conflicts that happen, that arise with... Um, they're dealing with a new society, or even if you've been here for many generations, um, that core rootedness is often lost with all the diversion that can happen with media and whatever it is that you have to do in your work or in the growing family life. So that, I think, is um, very important. And then... We found that each community has their own way of building 
their circles of trust. Um, the Ethiopians have it with their Mar Harbors, their uh, support circles that, where they meet for decades, if not generations, and pass down. And they have the lending circles and the funeral circles and the coffee circles. It just strengthens their, uh, their way of living and, and being and so that they can contribute that and be strong when there's so many forces that come upon one in just living and, and, and trying to cope. And there, there are certain ways of coping in each community. Uh, we, we love food as, as Chinese people, but there's nourishment and happiness in creating that food. And it doesn't take a lot of money to do that. We, my, uh, some, my family, sometimes they just rely, they're maybe vegetarians, but they rely on their garden. So um, that type of teaching, and, uh, which all our communities have, is very precious. It's just that it's not that known. And they don't even know that uh, that's their way of being. So we are always, I try to be very modest myself and uh, whenever we enter in a new community each time we go in the communities because they are evolving they are having to deal with things that are very pressing for them and um, they teach us a lot yeah. any last thoughts uh, Han Min before we close anything you wish I had asked you or that you'd like to yeah, add to I, just, just to underscore this importance of, you know, when we think about communities as a living system, as an energy system that, that repairs and heals, regenerates, renews, uh, discovers, that creates, it's a totally different paradigm for how we live together and how we see the other. Right? It's, uh, it isn't measuring, oftentimes we think about communities, oh, that's a pretty place to be, or that's a, or I, I like, you know, this particular kind of, of, of um, cultural experience. Um, but it, what we want to do is go deeper. And, and I feel as we are at a turning point, whether we'll do it or not, I don't know. But I think the lead is going to be with communities of color and vulnerable communities because they have nothing else. I mean, this is where their power comes from and, and where they draw power from. And so um, just for me, it's so important that all of us as outsiders who are working to help uh, in this really very complicated time in our history, uh, in both here in the United States and the world, that it's, it's, it's about finding out how we as outsiders can best help strengthen what already exists inside rather than coming up with either the solution that worked for us may or may not work for them, right? It's got it's we got to find what works for them. And then from that then we have to figure out ways to store to strengthen that, create an environment, a condition that helps that plant grow, help that seed become the tree, right? And that, so our work is to figure that out. And it's heavy lifting and it's complicated work. But I, I think this is, my guess is this is, this is a really very exciting direction. And so that's, yeah, that's what I want to say. Thank you. Yeah. Jennifer, any last thoughts? Well, we're very grateful for all the people, including yourself, who've supported us over mm. the many decades. We couldn't have done it, really. Yeah. 
without your belief. Your website is wildflowers.org, and it's a wonderful website to visit. And um, I just have such profound respect for um, the work you've done over far more than 40 years, really going all the way back to your organizing dental services in New York and recruiting Jennifer to work with you. <laughs> right. And uh, I think complex but interesting human being is probably a good description. Uh, I'm certainly a complex human being. I was just uh, reading the new translation of the Odyssey mm. and um, by a wonderful woman translator, the first woman, I forget her name, but it's a fabulous new translation. And the very first line is uh, the way she translates it. It's usually translated wily Odysseus is the way it's translated. But her translation is, the first line is, tell me about a complex man. Mm. <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> so, um, so I think, um, you know, I think complexity is kind of baked with the cake of being useful in this world. <laughs> kind of difficult uh, not to carry a certain level of complexity if you're going to be of service. And um, I'm just grateful to both of you for um, giving me the opportunity to work with you and to have this conversation. Oh, it's, I'm it's very grateful. Yeah, no. So thank you both. It's been really mutual. Yeah. Yes. Totally mutual. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Hanmin Liu, Jennifer May, and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.